nobody's advocating uh, going out, blowing up things or whatever, but we do need to understand that we are a target of an oppressive regime that has never taken its scope off of us. Welcome to All Thought is Black Thought. My name is G. And I'm O. Well, given that we're getting ready for uh, what appears to be an oncoming civil war, (laughs) I I thought we might uh, talk about previous history of, particularly in the U.S., but on a global level of how Black people have dealt with uh, onslaughts against us in recent history. Since the uh, Civil Rights Movement, Black Panthers Movement, and also maybe look at some uh, ways that the state has behaved in, you know, in other settings around the world when they're engaged in internal conflict. I mean, everything's new in a, in a sense. It's not that there's nothing new under the sun. It's that there are particular, particular nuances of the present situation that are, you know, the differentiate, the separated from other times, you know, but but as far as the broad outlines of what we're going through right now, I don't know if it's as unprecedented as a lot of people seem to feel like it is. What we see in Trump, as far as I'm concerned, is just a continuation of uh, the U.S. history of uh, white supremacy in the White House. You know, Obama, I remember telling a liberal white friend of mine that uh, after Obama, Obama got elected, that it was going to get worse for black people. And he got so upset by that. But, uh, man, I must be a prophet because it's really coming true. Unfortunately. unfortunately. Maybe people were really put this much to sleep by uh, the Obama administration because it did do some work de-radicalizing a lot of people. Like, it drew people out of our movements for freedom and put them in the administration, got them in, you know, kind of entangled in the electoral political machine and stuff like that, uh, with the sense that electoral politics could take it, you know. Um, and uh, I think that it, it really, it has the effect of demobilizing a lot of the critique that, that many of us should have been having. Like, I was super disappointed. I remember in 2008, um, when uh, Amiri Baraka, you know, who's sort of a, you know, like a godfather, to the black left, you know, came out in support of Obama and was critiquing hell people who, uh, who, you know, who, who didn't see that Obama's mere presence in the White House was going to be, uh, was going to do more for us as black people than a whole bunch of other, like, more concrete things. And so I think uh, some, of, uh, some of what we're seeing now is a function of people feeling the letdown after the high of the Obama administration. And especially Obama coming on the hills of Bush, who, you know, for black people, he was a disaster in terms of what happened with Katrina, you yeah. know, the uh, and then the beginning of the uh, banking meltdown that left so many black folks losing their homes, their major sort of economic uh, footing. You know, it seemed like uh, Obama was, you know, People had a lot of hope in him, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. What was his mm-hmm. what was what was the slogan? It was hope and what? Uh, hope and change. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. We got a lot of hope. I don't know about how much change we got. So Yeah, yeah. Well, most of us don't have very much change at all in our pockets. Right, exactly. That's what if we got anything, it is change. No. <laughs> very, very little of folding. And if it is folding, it's in the lower denominations. <laughs> so we do have to kind of balance the ways that we look on, you know, our present history as, you know, unprecedented. Oh my goodness, who could have seen this coming? We've never seen anything like this before. Even though, like you're saying, you could already see it. Or back way back, you know, and you know, when when, when was that conversation? Two thousand eight, two thousand seven. Yeah, it was around two thousand seven. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 You know, you could already see it then. I was able to see it then too, which is why I didn't vote for Obama um, in two thousand eight. I actually did vote then, but I voted for uh, for Nader because he was talking about universal health care. I don't know if he could have got it, but he was right. at least going to be pushing that line, and it would have been, you know, before right. Bernie. But I mean, there was something that you and I had sort of uh, grasped or studied, and it doesn't mean that we're wizards. It doesn't mean that we're geniuses, stuff like that. Well, I think you are a genius, actually, but it is kind of, you know, <laughs> something that I think most, you. <laughs> you don't have to be like super genius or super well-read or anything uh, like that to, to spot some of the signs. Right. And if you couple your life experience with just a little bit of a, uh sort of understanding of uh, political ideologies and historical practices, you'll see that uh, really what's going on is just a new manifestation of what's always been there. So when you see uh, Barr, the Attorney General, doing the things that he's doing, mm -hmm. uh, is very little difference between him and uh, what was happening back under Jake Hoover and the various attorney generals and the various administrations, uh, you know, Nixon administration, uh, the Kennedy administration, uh, there was, you know, there was, there's always been that tendency on the part of the U.S. government to be very repressive toward any sort of political change that would challenge capitalism and challenge uh, anti-black racism. I mean, you can you can go back all the way to the 1940s. And uh, for instance, when they had the general strike in San Francisco, uh, which included uh, a large part of the black community uh, as the longshoremen put on that strike. And the way that the state responded, uh, you know, the police apparatus responded to that strike. Harry, Harry Bridges? Yes, sir, that's it, yeah. An Australian that was the head of the uh, uh, San Francisco Longshoremen's Union, and you know there were you know the FBI got really involved in you know surveilling and acting against the particularly those members of the Longshoremen's Union. So you know, I don't know if it shows what if you're able to see what year that was, but it's 1934. 34. Okay, yeah. So it was pre World War Two, and that's. Mm -hmm. You know, that's been their practice, you know, yeah. for a very long time for anybody that challenges the status quo of the United States. Yeah. And, and for those people that speak out against it, they unleash all of the power of the state, of the state to uh, minimize their influence and, uh, 
you know, in certain cases, outright assassinate those people, like the case of Fred Hampton Jr., for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, I think what we're seeing now is just uh, the 2020 version of the 1934 version, which had a 1968 version. So mm-hmm. it's just an ongoing uh, onslaught, you know? And the, the things that people are, are, are seeing that uh, that seems so unprecedented. It's like uh, it's like the full like a full court press, like you're saying of, of the uh, the state with all forms of violence, police violence in the streets, and then the prosecutors, you know, and and now you know uh, Trump, of course, is about to get uh, you know get to a point like huge numbers of judges, including you know his uh, his third. Uh, Supreme Court justice, but yeah, the the, the police were uh, planning to possibly use uh, a kind of heat ray. Oh, what again? What was that? A heat ray. Um, oh wow, I yeah. heard about that years ago too. I think yeah. they had a, they had a, a part on uh, Democracy Now about them using that in Iraq uh, during the protest. Yeah. Yep, that's what it is. It's a it's yeah. a damn weapon of war from the U.S. military to use against citizens, right? Uh, and it's it makes you feel basically like your skin is melting away. Uh, it's called mm-hmm. an active denial system, but it's really just a heat ray. And apparently, there were some plans to use it before they were called off. A whistleblower reported that uh, there were plans to use it on U.S. citizen protesters in the protests in front of the White House and uh, in Lafayette Park. Wow. So, you know, we have all this stuff that seems like it's out of, like, that that's, That sounds like it's out of science fiction or something. Like, right. You know, or James Bond or something like that, you know. Right. But, uh, but they got it, you know, these things that we haven't even heard of are being applied against us. And I think, you know, to some extent, it makes sense why Trump and others don't really want us to know the actual history, why, why he talks so much mess about people like, Howard Zinn with his People's History of the United States, you know, about um, critical race theorists like Derrick Bell and uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, because they are engaged in a deep study of U.S. history, like deep in the documents, deep in the actual people who were there, the things that were there, you know, to kind of help us see this history and to know that uh, it's a common trick from the oppressor's playbook to use weapons on people that they've never even, you know, they've never even seen and hardly even heard of a lot of times. Like you hear right. about back today, people, you know, they'd send, uh, you know, big old uh, trucks with a with a chain, a machine, a chain gun, a machine gun mounted on the back of it to to silence protesters in um, in Detroit and stuff like that. You know, like right. We live in a society where knowledge is repressed, that we're mm-hmm. not taught. We're not taught well. We don't, you know, if you're a kid going to public school, you know, they, I think, intentionally make history uninteresting. They want you to be disinterested in what occurred in the past. And so you have uh, kids in black communities, Latino communities, Latinx communities, uh, Asian communities, you know, uh, native communities, not understanding 
the sort of violence that the state has engaged in at previous mm-hmm. points. Like you're talking about what happened in 32, and I was also thinking about the way that they used machine guns on veterans in D.C. under MacArthur uh, because they were striking against uh, uh, their bo- the bonus strikers. They were supposed to get a bonus for serving in the military. They mm-hmm. didn't get it, and they, you know, they put on a uh, protest. They set up tents uh, across from the White House. And MacArthur went in and used uh, automatic weapons to get veterans off the ground. These were people that served in the U.S. military. Oh, Douglas, Douglas MacArthur. Oh, yes. really? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah, he used it against the bonus strikers. Yeah, under yeah. Uh, under who, the Hoover administration. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Which, yeah. Which yeah. is an interesting parallel, right? That we're we're entering uh, another economic crisis that's, you know, that part is probably unprecedented because this economic crisis is, has the potential of being worse than uh, the Great Depression. Uh, yeah, but yeah, but the, way, the way that the state's responding is to just use open violence, you know. Uh, MacArthur used machine guns, and they were prepared to use a heat ray machine that they tested out in foreign countries, you know, technologies of war that were tested out in other countries and then brought back to the U.S. to be used against the U.S. citizens. Uh, Where are some of the sources they might use, G, to like, to learn about this? Uh, So uh, it's not going to be in any particular order, but uh, there's a few books that come to mind. Uh, Mm -hmm. For instance, one that I think is sort of a classic in terms of uh, telling the history of uh, U.S. Uh, policing and violence is Agents of Repression by Ward Churchill and Jim Vanderwall. Yeah, okay. And it was published by uh, South End Press. Uh, and it's the uh, FBI Secret War Against the Black Panthers. I guess the Black Panther Party, rather, and the American Indian Movement. And Churchill and Vanderwall just go into great details, very specific details about various operations that the uh, FBI engaged in during the COINTELPRO period. Uh, You know, the way that they used Milana Karinge's organization, United Slaves, as a... uh, weapon against the Black Panther Party and created a, you know, a warfare that ended up uh, with the killing of Butchie Carter, uh, Al Priest Butchie, Butchie Carter, uh, yeah. getting, and I forget the other brother's name that got killed John, in UCLA. John Huggins. John yes. Huggins. Yes, thank you, yeah. And that was, that was all based on FBI, you know, sort of escalating a conflict between the Black Panther Party and Karenge's United Slave Party, you know, everything from publishing articles in uh, various uh, small press papers to making phone calls to people to excite, incite violence between the groups. Uh, mm-hmm. Churchill, uh, you know, and, and Vanderwall also talk about the various uh, 
snitches that work for the FBI, the way they will lie about what people are actually doing, uh, the way that they set up Geronimo Pratt for a murder that he didn't commit. And I, I think he might have spent something like 30 years in prison fighting that case before he was finally exonerated. So, I, you know, I think if, uh, I think if people are uh, really wanting to understand where we're at and not think about this as unprecedented, but understanding the continuum that we're on, that's a good starting place right there is to read this history you know there's another book uh uh called uh project chaos and it was a cia project you know the cia as a government intelligence agency is supposed to only work on uh non on foreign projects they're not supposed to be involved uh in any sort of domestic counterintelligence work or domestic areas and yet they directed uh that project chaos toward or maybe it's operation chaos i can't remember the exact title of the book. Opera- yeah operation chaos is what i'm finding yeah okay yeah that would be it yeah and that's it, on theo harris yeah uh, yeah that's it yeah okay. okay yeah and so it goes into like all the operations that the uh cia was involved in uh, against uh, black liberation movement organizations and, you know, the various dirty tricks. They call it dirty tricks, but a lot of it was assassinations, either by character assassination and discrediting uh, sort of the grassroots leadership or by outright assassinations, literally killing people that were in leadership positions. And, uh planning people within black organizations so that they would have uh, intelligence networks to know every move that the organizations were making. So, right. yeah. Uh, you know, it's really, I, you know, it's just, uh, it's unfortunate that even when you go to college, they don't really teach these texts, right? You're not, it's rare that you're going to hear anyone pick up agents to re Depression or Operation Chaos. It's just not what they teach. It should be part of uh, some sort of a political history class or political science class because it was so important in terms of what it did politically to get us to the current moment. But, uh, you know, unless you're really taking a class with a very radical instructor or professor, you're not going to run across this material. You're definitely not going to get it in public education because if uh, Trump is having fits about Howard Zinn, what would he do with Ward Churchill? You know, so, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, compared to uh, Churchill, Zinn is giving a tame version <laughs> of things yeah. that have occurred, you know, so. Yeah. And if people want to know more, I think it would do anybody uh, good to just sort of go through a reading list of everything that Ward Churchill has written about. Because he said chickens had come home to roost after 9-11, he got kicked out of the University of Colorado at Boulder. But Mm -hmm. his work is very important, and it continues to be relevant right up to this very moment. Looking at things with the lens of people who've literally been genocided time after time after time to uh, so that this country, you know, could exist. And so that it's, it's, you know, its fantasies could be, you know, lived out the American dream and everything like that, right? But it, it requires.
requires the death of you know, indigenous right. people uh, so that these white settlers can live out that fantasy by, you know, building like the very place I'm sitting in now in, in, in Berkeley, California. They were hunting down indigenous people uh, who lived in these hills. You know, they would actually get uh, a bounty for killing indigenous people right up uh, through the like late 19th, early 20th uh, century. So we're only talking about like 100 years ago, you know? Yeah, that uh, was the 1900s they were doing that. Uh, yeah. That story of Ishii, I think it is, about the uh, last of his tribe mm-hmm. is a mm-hmm. story of a Native person, his whole group, his whole ethnic group had been killed and he was the last member of his tribe and then they brought him to Berkeley almost as a specimen and he lived out his yeah. life almost like a specimen similar to the case of Odabinga. They had him on display at the World's Fair uh, in New York mm-hmm. back in the 19, uh, early 1900s. From the way we learn about our history and our history in that regard has a lot we're both positioned by genocide both black people and indigenous people just black people yeah. are also positioned by slavery that's that's the thing that we were that's that's how we were introduced to the americas you know right. people talk about 1919 being the that's just the first state of the British colonies having enslaved people, uh, you know, like in the, that's, that's the first record of, I guess, of that, of that happening in the British colonies. But black people had been enslaved in the Americas before then, because in 1526, we already had a slave rebellion against the Spanish somewhere down in the area of uh, Georgia, South Carolina area, modern day area, would, you know, it would be considered, you can look it up, it's called uh, San Miguel de Hualdape. And they, uh, you know, they don't even have too much records from that place because the black people there just rose up and then they don't have any more record of them. They might have disappeared into the indigenous tribes, you know, indigenous right. nations, uh, for all we know, you know. But and, and, it just, and it just shows how poorly educated we are that you don't. I, I never heard about that history, you know, through my experience in undergrad education or graduate school. You know, so people saying it's unprecedented, I think it's really important that people put in some work to try to find this information out. When you're that, those two standpoints, the standpoint of people who are viewed as specimens, viewed as objects who can be sort of, you know, exchanged and passed around the world, which is basically the position that black people have been in for 500 years, and, and the perspective of people who've been genocided so that this uh, something called America can exist. They're, they have a great deal of similarities, a great deal of crossover when you're looking at the, from the perspective, because basically, you know, if we're talking about racial slavery. Racial slavery basically requires genocide. Genocide is what, what, was, what was happening on the African continent. And then racial slavery was the few of us, the few of our ancestors who were put on the boat, but, you know, uh, to, be, to be traded. But in order to get one of us on the boat, they might have had to kill two, three people. Exactly. People were just willingly surrendering. They fought back. They were fighting. They were fighting. 
they were escaping, they were fighting, they were building fortresses, all these kind of things, like Sadia Hartman talks about in her book, um, Lose Your Mother. You know, uh, there's a whole chapter that talks about how people, you know, in the African continent, we, we in the Americas have this idea that we were you just, you know, sold off and people didn't, didn't care and they weren't, they weren't resisting. They just were looking to sell us and stuff like that. Um, but, they, but what Sadia Hartman's story shows is that they were fighting. It does a good job, the book does, of saying, here's the image that the FBI likes to present of itself, the Hollywood movies, the, the pulp uh, detective novels. That's written. The, TV, the TV shows that were on simultaneous to the COINTEL program with yes. Ephraim, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I used to love that show as a kid, right? I'm sitting here. Oh, yeah, uh, watching watching the FBI show. You know, every episode there was a case that they were cracking. But, you know, I, I had no idea that at the same time they're showing him as the hero on TV and saving the world, that at the same time they're killing off black people that are fighting for their freedom, literally. At the same time, they're putting out that sort of uh, that image of what the FBI was, you know, that they had their uh, public affairs and media department creating the yeah. what we understood the uh, FBI to be. Churchill and Vanderwall do a good job of saying, like, you know, this is a consciously cultivated image, and the person who was largely responsible for that... They had that that on television while they were doing it. J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover seems to have been uh, kind of a departure from the previous directors in that he actively sought out these relationships. He even wrote the introduction to some some of the books that people published about the FBI. Right. Kind of putting his mark on that, that area. Not to say that's the only thing he did, you know, and he was in there for, I want to say, close to 50 years. He was the right. Of, you know, yeah, but he, yeah. he, that the fact that, that, that there had to be a person who came up with the tactics that we still see being used. Like, it's not, it's not the FBI, but that show Cops just went off the air. Just right. went off the air, you know? Right. And, and we can see that that's part of a media process of, uh, you know, cultivating a certain image of the police as crime fighters, not as active criminals themselves. Yeah, and they have two versions. They have two FBI shows kind of like uh, the same, produced, I think, by the same guy that made Law and Order, right? Mm, They have two two current FBI shows on, I think it's on CBS right now. You know, they, they, they're relentless in the public, uh, public affairs media representation of that organization, you know, right. so that people have a, a notion of them as being the protectors of America. Even the stories that they do about the FBI and uh, Ghost of Mississippi and, uh, you know, them being the heroes that come down south and save black people. You know, Mississippi burning. Mississippi burning. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know all that. All that narrative is constructed to put them in the very best light, and yet there's this whole other history that we're just not presented with, and so it leads us to be. Uh, I mean, it leads the average person to sort of have a misconception of what's been going on in the United States, and so that when Trump says what he says in such a 
you know, uh, unvarnished, uh, you know, un, un careful, non careful way. It seems like he's saying and threatening something different than what the state has been doing for as long as there's been these organizations. Basically, like a state of war against its own citizens, right? Yes. You know, yes. I think that that kind of puts you in a in a in a state of mind that can be unsettling. It can definitely be unsettling, and it should be unsettling. Um, but it, it also enables a certain line of sight on what's been happening for way longer than Cohen than even COINTELPRO does. Like we go, we can go back fifty years to COINTELPRO, but the insight that that gives us is like, okay, surely they weren't just abusing their power all of a sudden, magically in the 1960s or 1950s, you know. Right. Um, uh, what, what else have I been taught the wrong thing about? You know, and that's where I think that, that other book we mentioned, you know, uh, uh, Howard Zinn, People's History of the United States, uh, can really be helpful, at least as an introduction. And the, these aren't even black writers that we're talking right. about yet, you know. Right. But the perspective that they give is definitely relevant to black thought, black perspectives on the Americas, because what's happening now is not just the attack on us, you know, in the streets uh, by the police, uh, by the proud boys or whoever else, you know, but it's also an attack on our ways of knowing. They, they, right. they want us to say, you know, they want to gaslight us into saying that we haven't seen what we've seen. We haven't known what we've known when in fact the trauma is written on our bodies in ways that we cannot unknow, cannot right. unsee. And, it, and it's uh, part of an engineered program to keep people ignorant and keep them obedient because right. uh, it would be a whole lot harder to control a group of people that knew the actual events and history of, of the Black experience in the United States. I mean, if people were operating under and with the understanding that uh, every time that we sought to have basic human rights and be treated with basic human dignity, we were met by the force of the state and with violence. You know, if, right. we, if we say that we want the Klan to stop killing us and lynching us, and instead what we get is uh, FBI agents that assassinate us, then, then you know, it'd be, hard, it'd be very difficult to keep people uh, believing in the system. And the yes. first thing that they have to do is uh, engage in that struggle for position and control of thought. You know, the first, the first, the first act of war is the uh, the sort of the collective mental terrain of the people, the thought process, and that's what they've engaged in for a very long time. You know, uh, fortunately. Right now, we still have the ability to read what we want to read. You know, right. the other problem that we face as black people is that we need to cultivate the desire to read because the education system does everything it can to make us not want to read. And with good reason, who wants to read the bullshit they give us? So, yes. yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know we're living through one thing and then we're getting a story that just tells us something that doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from 
from both, uh, you know, conservative right wing types, as well as from, you know, liberal types. Yes. Like they, they have a narrative that they, liberals have, <clears throat> a lot of white liberals have a narrative that they basically have saved us, uh, that they, they saved us, you know, in the Civil War in terms of them helping us uh, escape to freedom. Like a lot of times the depictions of the Underground Railroad that I used to get growing up were of white Quakers. And in fact, as that book that we talked about or that, that, that incident <laughs> that you and I talked about in a recent episode shows, there was a huge black network, not just of escape, but also of intelligence gathering, spying on yes. uh, who was, what slave hunters were looking where, and also an, an, a black network of resistance, you know, which is what we talked about in the episode about the Christiana uh, resistance, uh, the Christiana uprising uh, rebellion, and uh, the, uh, the person named uh, William Parker, you know, yes. but uh, they'll also tell us that, you know, that we were the only, we're the only people in history who've gotten free, not with any effort of our own. And that's just, that's just wrong. That's just, right. that's just correct, factual, you know, not factual information, you know, like, even though you can also understand why a lot of black people weren't resisting more than they were because we were terrorized. Right, you know, right. The, the part of the story is also that, you know, that they tried to shut down the idea that, that slavery was, well, maybe it wasn't so bad. You know, in fact, they had every incentive to treat their property well. No, they could do anything they wanted with their property. They, they, they could even make more property with their property through the process of rape. Yes. You know, so, so it was, you know, it, it was 12 years of slave bad. It was right. Django bad. Right. You know, right. And, and, and that, that fact may explain why a lot of people were, were you know, hesitant to talk about how bad it was, but that's one of the things we know about trauma. People don't want to go back and revisit their trauma, you know? Right, exactly. So, so people might say that it wasn't so bad when it the evidence, all the evidence that we have says that it was as bad as white people could want it to get. And judging by what we've seen from white people in other parts of history, why should slavery times have been any different? They are sadistic and extremely repressive. Which brings us up even until the Jim Crow era and the sort of atrocities that went on and the reason that we would see people like uh, uh, Geronimo Pratt coming out of uh, Louisiana and that community having the attitude that it did, that the black church at that time was a focal point for the black community to organize around resistance and self-protection. You know, because they... You know, those practices, what happened under slavery didn't stop with the end of slavery. People just don't stop doing whatever they, you know, whatever they can still get away with. I mean, if right. someone can go into the store and steal all the candy, unless there's a consequence, that candy's going to keep getting stolen. You know, mm -hmm. they, people do what they can get away with, especially when we look at the history of what went on after slavery, that it was still a regular occurrence for uh, rape and lynching and beatings and torture, uh, you know, that sort of uh, Emmett Till became a particular symbol of that, but it wasn't unusual. You know, it just, right. just so happened that he happened to be from Chicago and his mother was in a place where she could speak out more loudly and more openly than she would have been able to probably if she was a out, you know, right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. and as it was, his, his uncle still had to uh, 
testify and then uh, basically go into an unofficial witness protection program. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really important. I, you know, it, it does us. It does us no good to think about this as unprecedented, but instead there's right. histories that we need to know about. Uh, I think another book that would be a, you know, I think at this point in time, people may be getting to forget about Geronimo Pratt, not know who he was, what he did, why he was mm-hmm. important. You know, he's, yeah. he's passed on now, but he was an important figure in his struggle. Uh, was a very important struggle. I mean, I think even Momia is lesser known than he was uh, 20 years ago. You don't hear as much yeah. about him as you used to. You know? But, right. uh, but uh, so, I mean, there's an extensive uh, body of work by Momia that people should uh, tap into. Uh, just, you know, look up Momia Abu-Jamal and there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of literature that he's produced and there's a lot of uh, that's been written about why he's an important figure in the liberation struggle and also move in that organization and the history of what they were willing to do to, uh, you know, black people that hadn't committed any crime except disturbing the peace. And they burned down an entire neighborhood for that. So, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, that, that, you know, that sort of goes to show what they're willing to do in recent history. But I was going to also mention uh, the book about Geronimo Pratt, I think, that people should look at is Last Man Standing, The Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Pratt. Uh, I believe that was published like in the 1990s. It was written by Jack Olson. And it's mm-hmm. the, it's a biography of uh, Geronimo Pratt and his experience as a member of the Black Panther Party and the way he was set up, the things, you know, how he became important. You know, he. one thing that's interesting as well is that I, I believe that uh, Ward Churchill was a Vietnam veteran and so is Geronimo Pratt. So mm. they, they came from an understanding of what the U.S. is willing to do in terms of violence. And they weren't uh, among those people, you know, thinking that... Uh, peaceful, passive resistance is the way to uh, get yourself free, which is quite often the attitude of uh, the liberal uh, class of white people who, you know, really don't experience the violence that black people in the black community faces. So it's quite, it's quite easy for a, a, a white anarchist who's nonviolent to think it's absurd to call for uh, learning how to use a AK-47 like Ward Churchill opens up with in pacifism as pathology. But if you're from a community where you know that they will come and just murder you and those apparatuses like the police department have no interest in stopping that from happening, then you understand why Churchill and Geronimo Pratt uh, engaged in the activities that they did. Right. And uh, Geronimo had taught those young teenagers, those kids really, taught some of the stuff that he learned 
in the U.S. Army, in, in being uh, airborne in Vietnam, you know, he had learned how to set up a perimeter and how to make it uh, the most defensible possible way. Because the police, working with the FBI, had basically orders to go in and by any means necessary to just break up the Black Panther Party. So we saw what they did, you know, when they uh, went to Fred Hampton's place. You know, um, they just went in a shooting and... Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's how he died on December 4th, 1969, right? December 8th, 1969, four days after the assassination of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. Four days after. They were going in with the same playbook, but this time there was an apparatus of resistance already in place because Geronimo Pratt had applied his knowledge to training the black youths in Los Angeles you know, people coming out of gangs, people coming out of, you know, prisons or California Youth Authority and stuff like that. And, you know, people who have basically been thrown away by the society. And he's teaching them, no, you can defend yourself, even against the police. And you are somebody and you can learn things and you can live a long life. You don't have to be, you know, in the in the in the street criminal mentality. There, There's a black revolution that needs you. Right. And I will show you how to be an asset to that black revolution, that long ongoing freedom struggle. And that, that's, that's, that's what I love about Geronimo. That he taught those kids how to stand up so that nobody ended up getting killed when the police raided. They were forced into, into waiting until the, uh, the news media and other, other you know, entities could get there. And that way the surrender was very, very public and very clear. Now the police could have still, you know, that publicity hasn't always stopped the police from just wantonly shooting people down in the streets of course but it and and getting away with it uh but in this particular case you know geronimo's training managed to save the lives of those kids exactly and a lot of those people are still alive to this day you know the fact that they're still here to tell that and to pass on that knowledge is really important but yeah it's you know, and the reason that I think people should uh, look at this because there's nothing saying they won't continue to do those same things. That's basically the case of Breonna Taylor under the auspices of the war on drugs. They went in and just killed her, uh, you know, based on a mistaken address. But even if they were going to the correct address, what makes it right to go in and just shoot people in that are sleeping because of drugs? Right. Right. You know, I mean, uh, 12 years or 20, 12 or 15 years ago, it could have been marijuana, which is legal mm-hmm. and people are becoming billionaires off of it right now. They, right. They, they, they would have done the same thing and somebody would be dead right now because of a marijuana rate. You know, it's just ridiculous. So, yeah. it's not, you know, they still engage in the same practices, uh, not mm-hmm. necessarily because they're trying to destroy uh, the black revolutionaries but you know as part of a process that overwhelmingly is targeted toward black communities and black people and when you when you see that when the when that is what that is the face of the police to you you know uh that changes how you look at everything about america and everything about american history and uh and even what kind of future to plan you know absolutely yeah you have but to think I, I, about it entirely differently when you have this sort of a historical yeah. perspective. Another 
book that comes to mind, G, uh, for me, I think a crucial part for me was reading uh, Frank Wilderson's uh, memoir, uh, Incognito, a memoir of exile and apartheid. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it really, uh, when I talk about like how I was able to see well enough in 2008 to know that I shouldn't be voting for Obama and to know that Obama was actually going to be part of the problem. Part of it was reading Frank Wilderson's memoir about uh, how Nelson Mandela kind of used some of the same, you know, lofty ideas and vaguely worded promises like hope and change, you know, uh, to get into power and then abandon the black freedom struggle in South Africa. Right. That uh, Frank Wilderson's, uh, you know, memoir attests to those very conversations were happening in South Africa. You know, the, the overwhelming majority of black people are poor and the, you know, the, the, rich, the, the white minority is rich. We need to, you know, do, you know, land redistribution so people can have their own land, have some self-sufficiency. And we need to do uh, other things that will kind of equalize the society, even if we have to take the land from the white farmers who, who, who basically pushed all the black people off of the arable farmland, you know. And Mandela's coming in saying, no, no, we're not going to do that. These white people have worked really hard to build this country, you know, and we're not going to mess it up. So to see that and, uh, and this, this, this holy figure, damn near, you know, damn near sainted figure, uh, Nelson Mandela, you know, um, to be, uh, to, you know, to see him as that kind of problematic figure even though I'm aware of all the stuff that he had sacrificed before, you know, like uh, right. that, that, that he, that he had put in a lot of work, even doing underground work and started, you know, Umkonto the underground army for, you know, the South African, the black South African freedom struggle and everything like that. But, but, you know, and to learn about, about that, you know, and see him as he was at one point a revolutionary, you know, freedom fighter, but with Wilderson's analysis, what you see is that, but all the time he was still the the son of nobility, uh, you know, board, like kind of a, what France Fanon uh, would call the late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, among people who were trying to decide, okay, it's obvious apartheid is going down. What's next? The national bourgeoisie, who often led independence movements of African nations and, and nations elsewhere, you know, like really seeing him in that light kind of um, cleared some blinders from my my way of viewing things. Right, right. And made it so I was able to see Obama as a different variety of that. You know, Mandela was the first, was black, was South Africa's first black president. You know, Obama was the United States' first black president, you know. And right. what are the similarities, how they were used to sort of demobilize black resistance, black protests, the people standing up for black people to not just be shot down in the streets. And Obama wasn't saying anything, anything in any of his rhetoric even from his very beginning national stage speech at the 2004 Democratic National Convention, you know, where he's talking about, I don't see a black America and a white America. That tells you it right there. He doesn't, <laughs> see, us. He doesn't even see us. That's How because he he's, he's got an optic nerve problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and, and that's that Frank Wilderson's book, you know, Incognito says that there's a scene where he's he's trying to explain why Nelson Mandela is going to sell out the freedom struggle in an in a early chapter of the book. He's talking 
uh, to uh, some gangsters in South Africa. Sotsis, they're called, but they're gangsters. You know, and he's uh, trying to explain to them, look, you know, I could be wrong about this, but read the letters of his that have been released publicly from when he was writing from, from prison and look at who he's writing to and look at who he's not writing to. Look at who he, what he's not saying. Right. Do just a simple little discourse analysis to say, okay, how many times does he mention things like poverty, land distribution, you know, land redistribution and things like that, you know, and how often does he mention things like, you know, a rainbow nation or, you know, kind of a, you know, multiracial cooperation and truth and reconciliation and all these different sorts of high, high sounding ideals, you know, uh, it's the same kind of stuff that Obama was giving us with the saying, I don't see a black America and a white America. I see United States of America, even at the time when black Americans were losing massive amounts of real estate, massive amounts of homes, right. You know, right as he's, you know, right, right at the, basically he, he makes that speech in 2004. So I should say it happens right, you know, shortly after that it happens starting in like 2007, but you know, still, uh, you know, when he gets elected, you know, he, he's, he, he doesn't, that's, that's part of why we should have known that he wasn't going to do anything to make it right for all the different, all the black homeowners who lost their homes because of the financial collapse. Yeah, no, it's really, really important. Like, uh, if you look at what Obama and Mandela were saying and then what the result of that was, is that, mm-hmm. you know, you look at South Africa right now and there's people basically uh, fighting against the same systematic oppression that they experienced under apartheid. You know, yes. it, it's put under the, uh, you know, under an economic struggle now. But really, I mean, the policing systems, as far as I understand it, uh, the even though there's, uh, you know, the the color line is not enforced by law, it still exists in the same ways that it always has, and none of those things change. And when you look at what's happening with black people in the United States, I mean, look what's going on now. Instead of there being uh, any sort of a racial unity, everything is aggravated to the most heightened point that has been in since the 1960s and the police are behaving in a way that shows that they don't care like right you know in the shadow of george floyd the police are you know doing things like shooting a brother seven times in the back with no weapon you know brianna taylor gets killed all of these things uh you know and there's no consequence for their actions so there's really uh you know, there's really nothing that we gain from having the symbolic uh, figure of a black person in the White House. You know, it, right. it, we would have been much better off if we had somebody that was talking about justice. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Bernie Sanders would have probably done more toward any sort of a uplift movement for black people than Barack Obama was ever willing to commit to. And I'm not saying that I think Bernie Sanders uh, would address what's going on with black people in America. And so that just tells you how far off we are from uh, the vision of people like a Geronimo Pratt and, you know, the early Huey P. Newton or Fred Hampton, you know, and going back to even Marcus Garvey and what he thought we needed to do to be free. You know, when you, you know, we've only mentioned a couple of books, but 
I think it's just like a starting point for people to start going back and looking at, like, if you look at what Churchill writes about and the things that occurred, if you look yeah. at uh, what Geronimo Pratt tells in terms of his the narrative of how he ended up in prison, what he was doing with the Black Panther Party, what his life was like in Louisiana, you know, and, and why the people in his community thought he needed to learn how to go and conduct warfare. You know, the fact that, that the elders in his community would send him to Vietnam to learn how to do war tells you a lot about how desperate the situation was, you know. And the fact that we get it shoved down our throat, that we need to be, uh, you know, following John Lewis's example of, you know, being engaged in good trouble. <laughs> That's, yeah. You know? <laughs> Man, you know, I guess, you know, I guess the only thing we can do is just lay down and get choked to death based on that attitude, you know. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> yeah. 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 Submit to your genocide. Right. Right. Yeah. But there it's are crazy, man. There are other examples that people need to know about, you know. I think that's one of the ways that I that I that I hope this podcast can sort of help shift some of the conversation. You know, is uh, is to let people, you know, really see these uh, these these kind of uh, moments from our history as ways of uh, kind of shaping how we respond today. You know, right. what what we know, what to do, what what we know to expect. You know, that COINTELPRO, even though it was caught and FBI said they disbanded it and stuff like that. But what that really just means is it means it was further integrated into how they do things every day. And it's also integrated into how the police, the local police, do things every day. You know, so it's not, you know, it's not, uh, it hasn't gone away. It's multiplied. It's under a different name. It's the Patriot Act. It's uh, what we learned from Edward Snowden about, you know, you know, a uh, sort of umbrella of surveillance. It's the ways that the police have uh, used the war on drugs as a guise to arrest and murder whoever they want to, basically. All of those things are s- still operating, you know. To know that and to know that Black people, you know, who can be weaponized against our own movements, whether it be... Louis Tackwood. Well, he was involved with the the assassination of George Jackson, and and the uh, fact and the fact that uh, <laughs> Ward Churchill names names, you know. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not that's not typically what academics do. You know, they're too squirmish to do that. You know? Yeah, and then like yeah. you say, those people are used, like including the Attorney General of Kentucky. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Daniel Cameron. You know, none of this stuff is new. It's it's been around and it keeps coming around. You know. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. They just got so, black faces in high places. That's the only difference. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people they they've, they've trained for it their entire lives. They 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 see it as the opportunity of a lifetime. Right. To you know be called to participate in these things. I mean, he could be you know. There could be another vacancy that comes open on the on the Supreme Court. Right. You know, Trump gets another four years. Right. You know, and his 
you know, he's 38 now. I don't know how old you have to be to be a Supreme Court justice, you know. Right. Uh, but, you know, hey, <laughs> if Trump, Trump wants, you know, two more terms, you know, right. then, you know, hey, anything's possible. It's also very useful to see that, like, okay, these are anti-democratic forces, like Agents of Repression talks about COINTELPRO. Right. You know, um, you know the, the Frank Wilderson's book talks about the uh, South African Defense Forces or the South African Police and Special Branch of South African Police and stuff like that. You know, under apartheid, um, <clears throat> there's, you know, COINTELPRO, there's, the, you know, the local police as well as the, the, the FBI and stuff like that. Um, and then, of course, uh, Howard Zinn's People History of the United States talks about all these different branches of, of, uh, of repression that, that happen. You know, uh, uh, whether it be the military, the National Guard, on down to the, the local police and even vigilante groups. And um, then uh, Geronimo, Geronimo talks about, you know, growing up mm-hmm. in a community that was constantly harassed by the Klan and going to Vietnam mm-hmm. and then joining the Black Panther Party because he knew that it was necessary for the liberation struggle. So, yeah, the, and and that. You know, all of the, like you say, the anti-democratic forces that were arrayed against him and the Black Panther Party. The fact that they, the fact that they have to, in order to uh, shut down democracy, they, they have to shut down black people. Right. You know, like, they're, they're coming after us. So the signs we see that Trump is anti-democratic, uh, it doesn't matter if he speaks in front of a group of black people in Atlanta and presents what he calls his platinum plan for black America. You know, if we see him being anti-democratic, that's, that's never been a good thing for black people right. in America. Right. You know, it, it's never been a good thing, you know, and even in, even in South Africa, they had to resort to all kinds of dirty tricks because that's a super, super black majority there. So they right. had to separate people. They had to, you know, turn the, Inkata, Inkata Zulus against, you know, the Kosas and other people and stuff like that. They had to do all kinds of stuff to divide people. Yeah, they use that, they use that uh, drug. They had a uh, episode on, uh, I believe it was Vice TV, about the uh, widespread use of that drug to sort of depoliticize the black community during apartheid. Yeah, it was a, a guy named uh, Buder Basson, who's nicknamed uh, Dr. Death. Supplying uh, ketamine. Yes. You know, I, I I think that that drug has become actually you know very popular. Like a lot of people, a lot of black people in South Africa are addicted to it. It's like it's like the crack cocaine right. in South Africa. Right. You know, I'm sure there's also oh. crack cocaine too. Yes, and the fact that 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 they would resort to an outright you know uh, chemical warfare is basically what it was. You know, in in order to maintain power and the way that crack cocaine got introduced, uh, you know, all you need to do is uh, read uh, Freeway, the real Freeway, Ricky Ross's uh, narrative about how they supplied him with cocaine. And, uh, you know, he became sort of a conduit for uh, crack cocaine to come into the U.S. and then for the funds to go back to. Nicaragua, there's a, you know, the, uh, the book by, uh, Gary Webb. Yes. Dark Alliance. Is that the title of that book? Dark Alliance, the CIA, the Contras and the crack cocaine explosion. Right. 1998. I mean, all of these things just had a really disproportionate in South Africa. 
it deeply affected black people right up to this day. The the whole crack economy has led to uh, ongoing sort of intercommunal violence in black communities that's just still happening right up to this moment. I mean, it's not that people are on crack as much as they used to be as much, but the the uh, leftover residual practices of violence is devastating to black communities, particularly the most poor black communities. All of this yeah, was interfered really- by the state. To shut down black... Uh- Black resistance. Yeah. You know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about the, uh, the the L.A. gang truce. Yes. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, it's uh, you've unlodged a boulder. Uh, yeah, where the uh, LAPD intentionally set up members that were involved from the Crips and Bloods that were involved in uh, creating a truce after 1992 in order so that they could pre- keep the division going between the rival... Uh, organizations the LAPD was instrumental in keeping that going you know Ruth right Ruth yeah. from Gilmore writes about a particular case where they planted drugs on one of the uh, organization members that was involved as a sort of in a leadership role of that truce because they mm-hmm. did they, you know the fact that if you could get uh, Crips and Bloods to uh, redirect their energy Toward the state that is oppressing them, that's a dangerous thing to the uh, the U.S. political and economic apparatus. I mean, it's uh, I mean, it's like one of the themes from that uh, movie Warriors, that cult gang film from the 1970s, where they're all meeting up in New York City uh, to mm-hmm. unify, and they end up killing the leader that had called all of the organizations together. You know, there's people have been understanding for a long time that if they can unify the underclass and the uh, elites would not be able to govern. They can't kill everybody. But, yeah. you know, on the other hand, the elites have figured out a way to keep on producing disunity. So right now what we see happening, uh, the way the police are responding to organized protest and the way that they're calling uh, Black Lives Matter a terrorist organization and Antifa is a terrorist organization. This is part of a script that they're playing out. And uh, the next thing I expect is the introduction of some other sort of a drug element so that they can declare another war on drugs. You know what I'm saying? So this is they've been doing it over and over again for as long as you can remember. You know, the introduction of heroin to the black community. A lot of people argue that was done by the U.S. government to help, you know, as a to help do their war in Vietnam, you know, and to support the warlords in Vietnam. So they introduced heroin to black communities across the U.S. So, mm-hmm. and it, you know, I have no doubt that that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Once you once you study the, the you know the different tactics that have been used, it's it's not a stretch to see that uh, that's possible. It's at least plausible. It right. doesn't mean we you know that doesn't mean we we become you know like credulous and become like suckers and we'll believe anything that's put in front of us and stuff like that. But what it does is it you know that there's a there's a hesitance to accept a lot of these things at first when you're first like when I was first you know, being introduced to a lot of these, these ideas, the ideas and 
Howard Zinn, the ideas in you know Ward Churchill's Agents of Repression, you know uh, George Jackson's uh, Soul Dad Brother, Blood in My Eye, as well as Frank Wilderson's book and Ruth Wilson Gilmore's work too. You know when I was first being introduced to that, I was hesitant. I was really hesitant to, and and what I realized is that my hesitance was an assumption. There there was it, it wasn't me being open or me being you know uh, objectively skeptical. I had an active resistance to wanting to believe these things because of the type of family I grew up in. Uh, a lot of people, you know, in my family have been in the military. That's how they came up out the hood and the military and the GI Bill and all that kind of stuff. You know, so um, there's this kind of built in patriotic willing to believe in the goodness of the United States. that's kind of built into my upbringing. I had to, it has been a long process for me to kind of reconcile, uh, you know, the, what I was taught to believe about America, that I should believe America is a good place where equal opportunity is there and, and my lived reality. Right. You know, and then especially as I got, as I became an adult and got to know other adults who didn't come from a family with two parents who had college degrees and stuff like that. And, you know, and, you know, two incomes and were able to put us in schools that had, you know, college preparation track available, you know, uh, that, you know, if people who didn't, come from that kind of background, black people especially, they had an even deeper perspective. Like, I could see the cracks. Right. They could see the depth. Right, right. You know, and even when you come from a working class background, there's a part of the, you know, the collective indoctrination that goes on in religious indoctrination that leads me to think that part of that is a personal responsibility issue, and it takes some additional reading and you know, uh, developing uh, understanding and access to history to understand how we come to the place we are. Because otherwise, yeah. you're just going to be pathologizing black people for not wanting to work hard because they show up mm-hmm. late to work all the time. You know, they drink too much. You start realizing that really black people are no different than any other group of working class people in the United States. The only difference is, is that we're targeted because we're black. And that means special things in America that other working class groups don't necessarily have to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Like not being considered human. Yeah, that's a lot, too. He's <laughs> a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole big, deep topic right there. But, Man. you know, and then the other thing that bothers me is the way that Black people that sort of know this stuff and mm-hmm. sort of just want to downplay it quite often because it's just they consider it dangerous knowledge rather, right. rather than sort of uh, allowing themselves to deal with it and and really wrestle with it. I mean, I know Nelson Mandela knew more about what would happen, what could happen. And I know Barack Obama knows the histories of, if he went to Harvard and, you know, and the universities that he did, and he appears to be a very intelligent, well-read person, he knows these histories, you know, or you take someone like Van Jones who worked in his administration on the Green Project, you know, and Van Jones had been involved with an armed struggle group as recently as the late 80s, early 90s. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? 
right, the right. the organization. I mean, they sort of that storm. Storm. storm the reason they put him out of uh, the position because Fox News got that information and attacked him about it. But Van Jones mm-hmm. knows that history, and yet, yeah. you know, look at him. He flipped, you know, yeah. and act yeah. as if there's some way that we're not confronting what we're confronting, as if Trump can be dealt with in some sort of a reasonable way by black people, you know. Yeah, Van Jones said on uh, on February 28th, 2017, after, uh, let's see, he said, uh, Trump did something right tonight that you cannot take away from him. He became president of the United States. Wow. You know? Yeah. That's like, uh, that's like that's, that's basically like praise. Yeah, it is praise. Yeah. Yeah. You know? it's, it's praise for violence. It's praise for imperial violence at that. From someone who was involved involved with the uh, group that was advocating armed struggle at one point, and that points to another problem, right? The fact that Nelson Mandela or Barack Obama can determine the fate of all of the black people in their respective countries—that's not democratic, and that's not the way things should be. It shouldn't be up to, even if we're involved in an underground. Uh, struggle as they had in South Africa. It wouldn't be for one person to determine uh, the move of, you know, the next move of the entire organization. That's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that's that's not how things should work. And it, yeah. and it doesn't work that way if you look at the history of struggle in other organizations. Another book that I think um, it's not directly related to uh, the African-American struggle, but just the idea of how struggle occurs, this formation of violence by Alan Feldman and sort of the ways that you see technologies of torture, warfare, isolation, and how they're used to break down combatants uh, in, uh, in Northern Ireland uh, during the quote-unquote troubles and the way that the British government and the way that the uh, Irish Republican Army uh, went at each other during that time. I mean, it, the initial part of it is highly theoretical, but when you read those narratives, you can see those tra- technologies being used against black people in the United States, you know, yes. right, right at this mm-hmm. very moment. You know, the use of isolation and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the way that they have people put in security, the equivalent of a shoe security housing unit where you, are under bright lights 24 hours a day until you lose track of time. You know, all of these things we need to understand because it feels like we're headed toward that being some of the tactics they use to suppress our militant and our militating for liberation and freedom and the end of all of this police violence that we're experiencing. I mean, we just, I, I just feel like we need to be studying these things because that knowledge is going to be important in terms of how we organize ourselves in the future. These are books that are available. It might be difficult for some people to, to get to them, um, to some of them, but, uh, you know, they, they're, right. they're different ways, different ways to get into them. And uh, a lot of them may be at uh, the library, local libraries, or, you know, if you want to order, please order from, you know, black bookstores like Marcus books, uh, in Oakland or, or, um, or from you know AK Press, which is an anarchist uh, press uh, company, or um, you know. And if uh, and if you don't and if you don't have any money, 
talk to your friends that are good with the internet. <laughs> yes, see what they can find. There are ways. There are ways. I won't say more, but those these things are out there, you know. So, and it's and that's important. People are doing that for a you know? reason. Oh yeah, people are doing that so that this information can get out there. They're risking freedom, fines, you know, all these different things, uh, so that we can. Kind of like Edward Snowden did on a on a on a big scale, right? You know, uh, right. To kind of expose, you know, th- documents that aren't supposed to be as accessible as he makes them, and then we right. have access to them. And we have access to that knowledge, right? You know? Right. That's uh, that's really important to do, right? Um, I'd advise everybody to learn how to use the internet because you know we're yeah. we're in difficult times. People may not have money, but information is available if you know how to use the internet. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's valuable. Yeah, talk to people, you know, do searches right. for titles. You may run into some interesting websites. <laughs> right, right, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So. And share and share podcasts like, like this one, uh, you know, on your on your Facebook, on your social media. Get people talking about it. Right. And as the conversation broadens, it's bound to touch on some people who know how to help you get the stuff that you need to get. Yeah. This is vital information it's vital yes we're not just talking we're just not talking out of the side of our neck this is stuff that everybody can read and learn Mm -hmm. you know what happened with geronimo pratt is out there what ward churchill you know writes about is a a factual history of what the state will do when you want to be free the ways that they will make you unfree it's out there Mm -hmm. you know even even if you want to find, um, you know, uh, Dark Alliance, uh, well, it's based on a series of uh, articles. Yeah. The book is based on a series of articles that Gary Webb wrote at the San Jose Mercury News, and I believe you're able to find those, uh, you know, on online, you know, yeah. like the article series, uh, which can, uh, you know, if you search, you know, Gary Webb, Dark Alliance, uh, you know, PDF or, or full text or something like that, you know, you, you can find that. And uh, that by itself is a real eye opener. I mean, so many people have been talking about that, you know, since the, these, since this was revealed, you know, and there's even a TV show or two that is based on it and stuff like that, or that includes it, you know, yeah, uh, uh, snowfall, for example, yeah, Singleton snowfall on, uh, on, um, on, I yeah, it was on, FX. Netflix. Yeah, yeah. And there was a uh, Netflix I think that that had it and stuff like that. I don't know if they're going to continue to produce that show or not now that uh, of course uh brother John Singleton has passed on, but it's um it's really, you know, useful to see that. There's also a movie with uh Jeremy Renner in it called Kill the Messenger. Yeah. It's about the life of uh, of Gary Webb and um I know Narcos uh Mexico kind of has some connections that it that it draws in some of the episodes to the uh, cocaine, uh, crack cocaine in uh, South Central. And there's an episode where the Migos, uh, rap group Migos, are kind of uh, doing a cameo as some drug dealers who, you know, teach, who show how easy it is to make crack cocaine. You know, so it's all, it's out there. The, the information is out there. Or like the, the last narco on Amazon that uh, sort of goes into the gov- the CIA's involvement in the drug trade. Yeah, so. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. That that stuff, you know, once you see that, you know, you can't just think, okay, 
Well, but that was then, right? That was just a moment. No, what we're telling you is that this is a longstanding playbook that oppressors all over the world share with each other. Yes. You know, uh, tactics that they use. If, if it was happening here with crack cocaine, it was also happening in South Africa with yeah. uh, with ketamine. You know, yes. yeah. um, you know, and and uh, and it, and and it's still affecting people today. In you know, in, in you know, in cities in the USA, it's also still affecting people in South Africa. Yeah, in South African, you know, cities and rural areas. You know, yeah. so it's like you know, knowing the playbook uh, will allow us to be able to counter that playbook when the time comes. Right, and it'll help us to see why it's so important that we sort of look at things differently and organize differently, given what the state is willing to do. You know, we're not, I'm not, you know, nobody's advocating uh, going out, blowing up things or whatever, but we do need to understand that we are a target of an oppressive regime that has never taken its uh, scope off of us. We've right. re we've remained in the crosshairs uh, since we got free, quote unquote. Right. You know, we've never really been free, but since they, you know, outlawed chattel slavery, we've been in the crosshairs. Yes. So every time yeah. these people get on MSNBC and talk about how Trump is an anomaly and you know, I've heard some really ridiculous things. I think uh, Joe Biden said something about there's never been a racist president in the United States. You know, like you, you wonder, like, what are, you know, who is, you know, what kind of history is he looking at? You know, it's an interpretation that is not a black interpretation of the history of the U.S. That's the problem. No. Yeah. So. No, you can't be black and say that type of stuff. Once yeah. you're seeing right. Rodney King and Trayvon Martin and Ayanna Stanley Jones and Katherine Johnson and everything that you've seen. And, and had, had presidents like Woodrow Wilson. And then you get into uh, Ronald Reagan and stuff like that, talking about, right. you know, these African leaders only recently started wearing shoes. You know, who are they to... You know, to to side with the other the other people in the in the U United Nations and stuff like that. You know, like right. you know, like all the different ways that you can you can get into just even just understanding the how false a statement that was for Joe Biden to say. Right. Just to go back and see what is the history of racism in U.S. presidents. Well, actually, right. there are people who've written about that and who talk about that, and you can find out more about you know. And people, and, and, and we need to define racism broadly because all racism is anti-black. Right. All right. racism is anti-black. So even if the people are just, uh, appear to just be acting against indigenous people, no, 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 no. They're acting yeah. against black people too. Right, right, exactly. Even if they do other things that seem to be for black people, they are acting against black people when they are promoting white supremacy, a structure in which black lives do not matter. Right, exactly, yeah. No, none of this, none of this stuff is new, and we're, you know, that's why we can have young people saying we're not our ancestors because we don't, you know, we we're being taught history and our experience in a way that doesn't even acknowledge what our ancestors did. You know what I'm saying? Like Akinelli, Mojo's book, "We Will Shoot Back," tells an entirely different history than the typical civil rights narrative of 
you know, peaceful nonviolence. You know, we that's such a that that alone is what has been foisted on black people is the only way to respond. And yet there's ever you know, there's a history that Martin Luther King kept guns just in case, you know, that you know, that that uh what they're telling us about being nonviolent, that would be foolish in a situation where you have people that are willing to kill us all. You know? Yes. So you know, it might have been a tactic to have demonstrations that were nonviolent, but people weren't walking around unarmed in their personal life when there was people that were pre- prepared to murder them at every turn, you know? No. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, it's important to, and it's important to have these things in context, you know, to understand also what the potentiality is of, of the world that we live in. Like, if you think right. this is bad right now, it could get very, very much worse very quickly, you know, yes. mm-hmm. in, in a way that we will be on an island by ourselves as black folks dealing with this by ourselves because you really can't rely on, uh, you know, the liberal wing of the Democratic Party that is spineless. They can't even get the nerve up to fight, you know, a little bit rough for a Supreme Court seat, let alone they've never shown a willingness to really get on the side of black people and stop the police from murdering us and stop the crime from attacking us. We've always had to rely on ourselves within our community, you know, and a lot of the time we were in conflict with the uh, more upper class black people that, you know, had a thought they had a way of escaping and the working class and poor black people had to just get out in the streets and, you know, put the smack down where you had to put it down, you know. So Yeah. 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 And that's a good book for for looking at that. Akinyeli Omoja uses um like oral histories, uh, you know, or part or you know, a big part of his, his sources, people telling about their actual lived experience, you know, of uh seeing how the the national civil rights organizations would just kind of parachute in when the local working class people had been organizing uh, for, for, for decades right. to, uh, you know, you know, to, to, to defend themselves first and foremost, and then second, secondarily also to pursue some of their own desegregation uh, projects, you know, some of the right. things to get, get the boot off our, off our necks a little bit, you know, that, that book is good for that. The, um, the we, we will shoot back by Akinyeli Omoja. And also the Deacons for Defense by Lance Hill yeah. is another one that's good for uh, you know talking about that. And I'm sure we'll get to talk about those books in more more detail in, in subsequent episodes because those are really helpful, useful books to not just seeing how bad it has been for Black people, which is so, which is what these books like Agents of Repression, you know, and and uh, are, are really good for, right? But also showing how we fought back. Right. Right. Yeah, because it's really, you know, when you look at the way that uh, the broad narrative of black people in the United States, or I'd say South Africa is another example, they, you know, they never talk about the role that we had to engage in in terms of fighting to be free, like the way that we had to confront violence with violence to stop our oppression. And, and, and that leaves us, you know, in a certain sense, not respecting our own history and, and developing an attitude toward our, our ancestors that 
is unwarranted. You know, we had heroes just like, just like you hear sort of the patriotic heroes in the American narrative. Well, black people had their own heroes, you know. Uh, that's the reason I thought Geronimo Pratt, but there's a, you know, a spot of Shakur, you know, uh, uh, all of the people in the Black Liberation Army. You know, there's this book, uh, Days of Rage. Uh, I forget the author's name, but he sort of, uh, it's one of the rare books where you can find oral histories from people that were involved with the Black Liberation Army, you know, and the things that they actually did. Not that I think the, the author is really conservative. I don't like his po political point of view, but the fact that that narrative is out there, it's important for people to hear that narrative. This is an ancient history. This is, you know, 1970s. Uh, Gary Webb is 1990s, you know, 80s through the 90s. You know, all of this stuff is recent history. You know, in the last, last 35, 40 years, that's a very short time in the history of, uh, of the, the United States and the world, for that matter. So we, we need to know these things. And we just can't keep taking what we're being spoon-fed through public education systems or university professors that are afraid to broach topics that, you know, are willing to engage with the uh, Black people defending themselves. I remember sitting in seminars with uh, white anarchist graduate students in my, you know, in some of my classes, and they'd read uh, Ward Churchill and thought he was absurd, you know, and I was sitting there thinking, well, you know, my, you know, I had read pacifism and pathology and I was reading it as a uh, sort of a uh, manual on how to organize, you know, <laughs> and, they're, and they're sitting there just dismissing it out of hand, sort of shutting down the discussion before the discussion ever starts. It wasn't, it wasn't something they were willing to even concede. And that's why I knew we were on a, you know, we were standing on uh, two different sides of a vast, vast valley of experience, you know. So, <laughs> right. mm -hmm. you know, something that would really basically be irreconcilable. I mean, they considered themselves radical, revolutionary anarchists, but they weren't, they had no idea or willingness to consider the need to actually put up a fight. You know, the, the limit of what they were willing to do would be a demonstration and a protest. And, you know, uh, their spoke would uh, help people from getting arrested. And that was it. You know what I'm saying? They, they had never been, they had never been shot at. You know, if you grew up yeah. like I did, I remember my house being shot through in, uh, when I was uh, five years old, you know? So, you know, that's, you know, so you, you, you have an experience that would be so traumatic to people on that side of the chasm that they, they would not be, they'd be in therapy and in counseling and in psychoanalysis till this day, you know? <laughs> right, right, yeah. And I'm yeah. just, I'm just assuming that it is that way all the time, you know, so. Right. Right. And a lot of those people in the BLA and Black Panther Party, they just, you know, that's just part of life. They're not going to get all worked up over it. The only way they're going to be worked up if they don't, you know, if they ain't got their Nina, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. You know, if you ain't got your strap, then it's a problem. Otherwise, I feel fine. You know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we should be trying to get that, uh, you know, carry that, uh, you know, be, yeah. be able to carry. Just like uh, every other Second Amendment person, you know what I'm saying? Right, <laughs> right exactly. Yeah, we we yeah. we have rights apply to us as well. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Somehow it's different for us, right? Laws, you know, quite differently to us somehow. But, uh, right. Until they yeah, until I mean, they actually start enforcing it differently, though, we really should, mm-hmm. be, you know, standing our ground too. You know, so <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we have to. Uh, I'm sure. I'm to. sure every Republican listening agrees with me right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. know, the pacifist liberals they they might be upset with what I'm saying, but I'm sure yeah. you know people that believe in the Second Amendment understand that what I'm saying is that yeah, we should protect our Second Amendment rights. You know. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 That's been the that's been the crack that uh, that we've we've uh, found in the in the system, and one of the few that has enabled us to survive. They they put the Second Amendment in there so that they would have nothing impeding them yeah. from you know, hunting us down, killing us whenever they wanted to, killing off indigenous people and stuff like that, you know. But then we flipped the script on them. They got mad when the Black Panthers walked in the Capitol. Right. <laughs> Saying, well, we 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 have the rights that everybody else has, so we're going to carry our guns in here too, just like everybody else. They All thought, of a sudden, they want to pass the law. Yeah, they thought they were the only ones that could get their rifle and get on a horse. You know? <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? We can play cowboy too. You know what I'm saying? The first the first cowboy was a black cowboy anyway. <laughs> 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 Yeah. 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 Uh, that's that's stuff that I think you know gives a uh, gives people a good a good sense of what uh, what we're going to be facing. Yeah. You know, what yeah. we really always faced, but there's been a an effort to conceal uh, that so many of us have been facing it. We've been facing right. racial terror, racial violence. You know. Right. Black people in black neighborhoods, they, they have no problem believing always right. that the police are this bad. It's just seeing it again and again and again and knowing that the police are this bad everywhere and that it's happening every day in multiple places. Right. Uh, that, that That is what I think makes people a little, you know, even people who've seen police violence, you know, makes them have to be like, whoa, okay, this is deeper than I thought. But then there's people, you know, who haven't even grown up, black people who haven't even having to think about the police as those who would do this kind of thing they're the ones who they're either gonna plug their ears and be like la 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 do not hear this la, 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 you know? but there's really only so much you can do there there's only so much you know uh, and and they're gonna have to start coming around too these are you know books that i think can help people with that and if you can't find the book maybe you can find a youtube video based on the book right you know, or somebody on the book or something like that you know discussing it you know but we have to fight 
this battle first and foremost in our consciousness yeah. by developing our consciousness based on an accurate reading of what our history has been. That's why Trump's trying to shut it down. That's why Trump is trying to silence and, and, and appointing these so-called black historians to say that, you know, basically it's not as bad as what the 1619 Project said. No, yeah. it's worse than what the 1619 Project said, yeah. if for no other reason than the fact that 1619 wasn't even the start of black enslavement in the Americas. 1492 was when it started, you know? Right. So, like, so let's, you know, let's not go in the wrong direction with that. Let's not say it wasn't that bad. It was worse right. than what 1619 said. 1619 states it beautifully for the New York Times. You know, right, and that's only uh, going to go so far. <laughs> exactly. You know, exactly, they're not going to exactly. talk about prisons and the devil no. in the prison. You know, the 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 rapists that the prisoner, the prison administration let roam freely through the system, and the reason that the uh, Angola Three ended up catching the case they did because they weren't going to tolerate that. You know, when we can develop that uh, that consciousness you know, and, and uh, sort of see, you know, this is what America has been and what we've been living with, even when we didn't necessarily know we were living with it. You know, yeah. it, how, how America sees us has always been apparent to us. We just sometimes write it off, oh, that person was just being racist. No, because it wasn't just that person. Right, right. It's never just one person. There's a whole network of white people around every white person who becomes a Karen or who becomes uh, somebody who subjects a black person to some racist event. There's all kind of just racism just in the air. There's racism in the fact that South Central Los Angeles is what it is and Beverly Hills is what it is. Right. There's racism in the fact that in Cleveland, you know, the black, the, the historically black Huff neighborhood uh, has a 20 year lower life expectancy than the nearby white neighborhood of Lindhurst. Right. Racism into that everyday fact that we are seeing, we just don't always know that we're seeing it. And, so, the, and, the, and the way to understand that is to understand the dynamics that make all of those things happen, which is what I think you're pointing out, right? The fact that there is racism in these facts, there's also mechanisms that can be uncovered and understood. And that's the reason that a lot of this literature is so important because it exposes all of the various mechanisms that get us to that point. There's even more. There's so many more, but these are right. just, you know, just a few. Yeah, and if you can get that consciousness, uh, you know, get past that cognitive dissonance that's created, you know, based on your ongoing collective indoctrination, and then just take a, t a, a little bit of time to, you know, start hearing an alternative narrative. Like when you were growing up during my time, you would have heard a narrative about Geronimo Pratt that he did all sorts of terrible things, you know. Right. And then you start delving a little bit deeper and you find out that the man was an honorable man. He was trying to do the right thing toward his people because there were these people out there that were uh, hell bent on killing them, you know, just like right now, the, what I appreciate so much, like we talked about Django, 12 years a slave, uh, Watchmen, for instance, and now Lovecraft country, all of these, uh, this, you know, era of new sort of uh, narratives that come out through film that tell an entirely different story than gone with the wind.
you know what I'm saying? And Julia, you know, the first black woman on TV, you know, <laughs> and her son, Corey, you know what I'm saying? It's like uh, all of these films are like exposing the real America, you know, and the real black experience that hadn't been exposed for all that time. Look how long it was before there was a representation like Django in the movie theaters. All of that time we're sitting here, you know, the worst we had was uh, Roots and Roots, you know, I'm not saying it didn't do a lot, but it didn't show what happened to us the way that that did and 12 Years a Slave did and then the way that Watchmen pretty much forefronts the whole Tulsa uh, race riot. I mean, when I, you know, as recent as uh, 30 years ago, I thought that was just some sort of a made-up story myself, right? Because they, you know, they had did everything in the world to suppress the facts about Tulsa. So, you know, when you think about that and all these narratives that have been suppressed, there's, you know, you start understanding that all these things happen. You can't look at this place the same way anymore. Deruba, who has an article uh, around that came out around the time when Obama doubled the bounty on uh, Asada Shakur on imixwhatilike.org called Asada Shakur Excluding the Nightmare After the Dream. And uh, he's basically saying, look, people want to talk about Asada in terms of a question of guilt or innocence. They want to, the people who are speaking for her want to say, Oh, she was she was innocent, you know. That see, she had her her hands raised. But he's uh, Daruba saying that's really kind of beside the point, you know. Right. Uh, he's saying the point is really that we were at war, that we know about something called COINTELPRO that had declared war on Black people's legitimate freedom freedom movements, and uh, he said we can't get mired in a debate over legal quote unquote guilt or quote unquote innocence. Right. You know? And that's, uh, that's, I think, a crucial, a crucial point to remember about all of these things. Once you know what America is willing to do, what lengths it is willing to go to, to suppress people who are just saying Black Lives Matter. Right. You know, or just saying I am a man, like in civil right. rights, uh, civil rights march, you know, right. or, or just saying we want to, we want to escape to freedom. We, we, we want to be free. Right. You know, like black people were saying with their actions and with their words, you know, all throughout the time of chattel slavery. Right. You know, once you see what that nation will do to them, you have to really look and say, okay, well then what did they have to do in response? Because obviously the, the relationship of government to citizen is not working if the government has declared war on these particular black people. Right, who never, who were never really citizens to start, with. and that was by Daruba Benoit, uh, that article that you're referring to, right? The Black Panther, uh, who was uh, got, uh, they tried to, they tried to throw him in jail. They tried to, you know, arrest and imprison all the leaders. Uh, that was he was one of the Panther Twenty One. They tried to shut down the New York chapter by just mass arresting all the people who had leadership positions in it, and he ended up actually getting exonerated and he ended up winning uh some uh winning some money well he actually he did spend time in prison uh for his for his activities with the black liberation army and then he had been recently freed when nelson mandela came to oakland uh and was doing his tour before he got elected to president 
of South Africa. So he introduced Nelson Mandela uh, back back in yeah. the early 90s, I believe it was. But yeah, yeah, Daruba Benoit. Yeah, that's another person. You know, uh, there's a lot of literature out there that people need to read and they need to hear the alternative narratives and not just take the uh, sort of the character assassinations that uh, the FBI and the various police organizations have put out about these black leaders who, you know, sacrificed all to fight for freedom because part of the reason that they want to assassinate their characters is to not to make sure that they don't inspire other generations to take action you know because they know that we're they, the way that they keep us in us is in a state of desperation so we're always sort of uh at the precipice of uh rebelling in a way that they couldn't control so yeah yeah so it's a constant struggle on their hat, on their side of it, to keep us ignorant and and unengaged and disengaged, so they're trying every tactic that they can to make that happen. And people and people like Daruba Benoit, Asada, Geronimo Pratt, right. uh, the writings of people like Ward Churchill, and his activities as well. You know, all of these people. Uh, are important to sort of understanding where we're at in, in this current moment. 